Hey, good morning, everybody. Great to be with you. Great to have the spirit of worship that we have today and just kind of being able to be in God's presence after, uh, you know, another week and to think of the week ahead. Always good to gather together as God's people. For those who are here, for those who are watching online, we just want to welcome everyone as being part of our family of faith this morning. So I am on my last two weeks preaching as your senior pastor, and as I mentioned last week, I was tempted to kind of back up the dump truck and just unload everything that I've still got left to say. But instead, I'm trying to do the opposite by kind of taking my sense of what the spiritual life is all about and kind of just making it as simple as possible, just boil it down to the basics as I think Jesus describes them for us when he says in Luke 22:34, and I'll read it for us now. He says, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together, and one of them, an expert in the law, tested Jesus with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And that's the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And then he adds this conclusion. He says, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Love God and love others. It just doesn't get any simpler than that. And last week we looked at the first part of that passage, how to fall deeper in love with Jesus through a deeper or greater, richer experience of God's word. That's the first part. This week I want to look at the second part about loving your neighbor as yourself. And you think, well, that's pretty easy. That's a pretty easy assignment. Just love your neighbors. Treat people with the same kind of God-given love that you want to have for yourself. Care about people. Just care about your community. I mean, it sounds pretty straightforward. doesn't need much explanation, but here's the thing. This past week, I calculated that over the last 22 years, I've preached about 42 individual sermons per year, which adds up to about 924 individual messages, which adds up to about 6,930 pages of written text. And out of all of those sermons, all of the tough scriptures and the tough topics that I've tried to address, which do you think has gotten the most pushback? I mean, based on the number of emails I received from people or letters, what was my most controversial sermon? It was the series I did called love your neighborhood. People didn't like it. They didn't like the fact that I challenged us as a congregation to actually think about engaging with people we live with uh, in our neighborhoods, in our town, in our community. I can't believe somebody's actually wearing the love our neighborhood. Could you stand up? He's, I didn't even, I didn't even pay him to do that. God works in mysterious ways, doesn't he? Folks didn't like it when I challenged us to actually get to know our neighbors and to intentionally be a Christ-like influence in their lives. People were uncomfortable with that, and I got hit with a, a little bit, not a tidal wave of excuses, but a lot of people giving me the reasons why it couldn't be done and some even saying why it shouldn't be done. Basically, it seemed like folks in our church are kind of content with, to live within their own little bubble their own little igloo, and have no contact with those who are outside their pre-established social networks. It was like people were, were content to quarantine before there was ever a COVID lockdown, socially quarantine. And I understand that problem. There are many people in my neighborhood that I just never see, maybe to wave at while getting into the car, but, but that's about it. In fact, 
since we put a for sale sign up in our yard. I have had more conversations with all kinds of neighbors who just want to stop by and talk. I mean, these are people I don't know them at all. I barely know their names. And now over, you haven't spoken two words over the last 22 years, and now they want to have these long conversations that we're leaving. And I try not to take that personally, you know. <laughs> But I'm trying to listen and kind of take the time to talk with people because I think it's a, it's, it's a chance for me, maybe one last time, to, to give them a blessing just by listening and engaging with them. But we're so isolated. The idea of neighborhood and neighbors has re really changed over my lifetime. Think of some of the famous neighbors that we've seen on TV over the decades. Fred and Ethel Mertz on I Love Lucy, or Barney and Betty Rubble on The Flintstones, or Kramer on Seinfeld, or Urkel on Family Matters, or Mr. Wilson on Home Improvement, Ned Flanders on The Simpsons, Patrick Starfish on SpongeBob, or maybe the most famous TV neighbor of them all, Mr. Rogers. Mr. Rogers, all of these shows describe a kind of neighborhood where people would just stop by spontaneously, where there's just an open door policy all the time, mikasa sukasa, and folks come in and out of each other's homes just almost at will. But now in suburbia, we are generally so isolated in our individualized castles. And like a medieval castle, there might be kind of a social moat around our houses to keep others at bay because the drawbridge is up. We don't like it when somebody rings the doorbell. We don't like it unless it's the Amazon delivery guy or somebody bringing pizza or Uber Eats. We don't like to be interrupted. It's an intrusion. Nobody just stops by to chat. You have to make an appointment even to see your friends. Nothing spontaneous is really that welcome. So I understand the reluctance to love our neighbors. Sometimes when we read the Bible, though, and we read the words of Jesus, it's possibly to unconsciously exempt ourselves from what he's actually saying. We've either heard it so many times, it just doesn't have any impact, you know, it's just water off a duck's back, or we're just not comfortable hearing and doing. And I like these words from Jesus in Matthew 22. They're so simple, but they're actually so revolutionary that if we took them seriously, it would radically transform the way that we live. What if we were actually to take the second half of this great commandment from Jesus literally? What if we were to make loving our neighbors, our neighborhood, an extremely high priority in our lives? What if we looked at the people that we encounter in the stores and the schools and at sporting events and at community events? What if we looked at them through the loving eyes of Jesus? What if we did neighboring in Jesus' name? What if our church was known, really known for being a group of really good neighbors? You see, when we read or hear this passage, we think of the word neighbor is like, you know, well, everybody in the world is my neighbor. And so we often think up thinking that, well, then I'm exempt. No one is really my neighbor because, A, it's overwhelming to think about all these people everywhere, or B, we just realize that we just don't have the time. It's just over, it's beyond us to be able to do it. We're so caught up in our lives, we, we just don't have the time to squeeze anybody else in. We don't want to take on that kind of responsibility for a new relationship. We just, just don't have space for them. We might want to, we might feel like we should, but we've just got too much else going on. We know it intellectually, but on a practical level, we end up being a neighbor to maybe no one. What if we started with just a simple change of how we think? What if we recognize that Jesus wants us to focus on being the good neighbor, not on classifying 
who is my neighbor? I mean, after all, isn't that the point of the story that, of the Good Samaritan that Jesus tells in response to this question in, a different, uh, in Luke's gospel? What if we began to believe that it's not a coincidence that you are living where you are living right now? What if you've been sent there by God, sent to the individuals and the families in the, house, in the houses that surround you? Don and I are buying a new home in Keene, New Hampshire. It's where we're going to be headed. It's where we're going to be closer to our family, closer to my son. And like here, the housing market in New Hampshire is just a kind of crazy, you know, with houses getting multiple offers the day that they go on the market. That makes it really hard to find a house if you're not physically there to see it because, you know, it's gone almost instantly. So that's something we've been praying about and really seeking the Lord about. It's been very frustrating because we'll see a house online, but we can't get up there, and by the time we do, it's already gone. Well, we were in New Hampshire house hunting a, a while back, and we were very discouraged. All of the houses that we were hoping to see had already gone under contract. And so we had no leads. We were actually up there to meet with a realtor. We had nothing to see. Early in the morning, Donna got an alert from one of the real estate apps that the new house had come on the market. And as soon as she saw the photo, she said, Jeff, this is our house. I know it. This is our house. And if you know Donna, she's a great woman of faith. But she's not known for those kinds of pronouncements. You know, she's not kind of a name it and claim it kind of gal. Usually she's much more nuanced than that. But she was just so sure. So we called the realtor right away. We arranged with we the second people to see the house that way. We made, they, we made an offer. But there were multiple offers. And there was a cash offer that was better than ours. But Donna had written a letter to go along with our offer. You know, that's something that people are doing these days. And something in the letter touched the seller. She decided to take our lesser offer. Now, who does that? I mean, people don't do that. They don't take less money for their house just because of a nice letter. It doesn't happen unless the Holy Spirit is in it. And that's why we believe God has a reason for us to be in that particular place, in that particular neighborhood. He's placed us there. What if God has strategically placed you and people from our congregation where you are, surrounded by the people where you live? What if God has intentionally sprinkled his people throughout all these neighborhoods and throughout offices and throughout schools, throughout the community, so that we can rub, rub elbows with those who are outside the faith? What if it's been God's plan all along? Christians who gather on Sunday, but then during the week, we're scattered out into our neighborhoods. Like the evangelist Luis Palau once said, the church is like manure. Pile it up and it stinks up the neighborhood. Spread it out and it enriches the world. Spread out into our neighborhoods. That's God's plan. Loving our neighbors isn't going to be easy, but what I appreciate about Jesus is that he actually shows us how to do it. The first thing is we actually just have to be willing. To be willing to engage with people. And this might not sound profound, but it's actually crucial to loving our neighbors. Because if I were to take a poll in this room about who's an introvert and who's an extrovert, most likely the hands that would go up in the introvert category, if we could convince introverts to actually raise their hands, many of us are just naturally shy, okay? We shy away from kind of putting ourselves out there, even to build new relationships. And so when it comes to growing relationships with our neighbors, we say, I, I really don't want to. We may find ourselves kind of pulling into our garage or driveway, shutting the door, going into the house or the apartment, and intentionally avoiding contact or interaction with our neighbors outside. 
If, if we were to hear a neighbor upstairs, let's say you lived in an apartment building, you hear a neighbor leaving the apartment upstairs, you may hang out a few extra minutes before you go out your door because you don't want to meet them in the hallway. I've done that. I've done that myself. So I know what it's like to want to avoid spreading my emotional energy to my neighbors. But if we're going to be people who take Jesus seriously, we're going to have to be willing. Because life is short, and in this life we can only do a few things really well. So isn't it a good idea to make sure one of the things we do really well is one of the things Jesus said was most important, which is love your neighborhoods. As a Christ follower, it's a good idea to devote our energy and our, and our, our lives to what Jesus said was important. And what did he say was most important? Love God, love your neighbors. Those are the two things, the main two things that Jesus said we're supposed to do. So if we're only doing one of those, we're missing a big part of the picture. Jesus modeled that kind of willingness. Jesus intentionally sought out relationships. I love the story in Luke chapter 19. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Where Jesus spots that despised tax collector Zacchaeus, you know, up in the tree. Zacchaeus is trying to get a look because he's a short guy and can't see over the crowd. And Jesus says, Zacchaeus, come on down. I want to hang out with you. I want to go to your house. I want to meet your friends. And so he invited himself into Zacchaeus' home and life invited himself there. And throughout the Gospels, Jesus was intentionally going into people's homes and sharing meals with them. Did the same thing with Levi, with Mary and Martha, with the unnamed family in Mark chapter 2, and they ended up getting a hole dug through their ceiling. Uh, in fact, he spent so much time in people's homes eating with them that his enemies accused him of being a glutton. Jesus loved a good meal. He loved a good dinner party. And that's where he told some of his most famous stories. The lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. It was in someone's home around a table. One theologian calls this the sacrament of the party. Yes, Jesus, he spoke in synagogues and temples at big rallies, but his best work was always done in homes. Over and over again, Jesus intentionally sought out people and was just willing to spend time with them. So be willing. The second key to Jesus' life is to be interruptible. One of the reasons we don't build relationships with our neighbors is we say we don't have time. We're constantly updating all our time-saving technologies, and yet we still have no time. We have every cooking device known to humanity, but we don't have time to make a meal, and so we order out or have meals we go out. We text because calling or email isn't fast enough. We DVR shows so that we can, we can speed through the commercials and go faster. And yet with all the things that we have to supposedly save time, there's still not enough. And so we rush from one thing to another, barely with time to breathe. And the thing that we have to, ha have to look at is the fact that we have no margin in our lives. No margin. Everything is so tightly packed. No space, no room to maneuver. So if one thing goes wrong, the whole day is shot. We might not realize it, but hurry is one of the greatest tools of the devil. Psychiatrist uh, Carl Jung once said, hurry isn't of the devil, it is the devil. And this sense of hurry is one of the greatest barriers we have to loving our neighbors. Because hurry diminishes your capacity to love anyone. We can't hurry and truly love someone. 
Because caring takes time. Being a Christ-like husband or wife or neighbor, all of those things require us to slow down and pay attention to those around us. Being a Christ-like father or child or mother takes time. You can't have a relationship with your spouse or your child or a friend or a family member if you're always in a hurry. You cannot love your neighbor as yourself if you never let your carefully structured life be interrupted. Jesus lived an interruptible life because he valued people over everything else. And that's what giving your time does. It actually shows people that they're important to you. Time is probably our most valuable asset. People are willing to give their money just so that they won't be bothered. People would rather write a check than have to give up some of their precious time. But Jesus was always interruptible. He never let the urgency of the moment keep him from seeing and loving the people around him. So here's my encouragement, is that when you're trying to love your neighborhood, be interruptible. Might mean staying outside five or ten extra minutes when you get home to talk with someone. It might be dropping what you're doing and going and helping a neighbor with a project they're working on. If we're really going to love our neighbors, we have to let ourselves be interrupted. And finally, the third key is to be ready. Sometimes it's hard to reach our neighbors because we feel like, well, I don't know what I'm going to say. I wouldn't know what to do. Uh, we think about engaging with our neighbors. It can kind of make us feel uncomfortable because we don't know how to begin. We don't know how to cultivate a relationship, especially if you've lived next to them for a lot of years and you've never really connected with them at all. It can be initially awkward. But at the end of the day, understand that awkwardness never killed anybody, okay? If we're going to do what Jesus said we're supposed to do, at some point, we may have to embrace the awkwardness of that encounter and decide ahead of time that we're going to take the step towards relationship when the opportunity arises. Otherwise, you're just going to chicken out in the moment. But if we're going to be about this loving our neighbor's business, we have to be ready. We have to commit ahead of time that we're going to take any opportunity that presents itself because in order to take Jesus' words seriously, we've got to create space in our lives to build the relationships with those near us. So love God and love your neighbors. Jesus answered in two parts because these two parts are inseparable, as I said last week. They go together. Loving God with all that we have is about becoming a person who's transformed by this relationship that we have with Jesus Christ. And this new self who has been and is being transformed by God's love is then empowered to love others. And so loving God with your whole heart has to have expression in the way that you live. It has to. And Jesus says the very best way to demonstrate that is in how you treat the people who actually live nearby. What Jesus is saying here about loving God and loving neighbors only makes sense within this larger story of why Jesus came to the earth in the first place to die for our sins, to rise again, and to offer people a way back to God. Theologian N.T. Wright puts it this way. That's when these commandments begin to come into their own, when they are seen not as orders to be obeyed in our own strength, but as invitations and promises to a new way of life in which we live the way Jesus lived, and bit by bit, hatred and pride can be left behind and love in community can finally become a reality. When Jesus said, love God and love your neighbors, he's inviting us into his new way of life, a way of life that could restore people to God, 
could restore communities, could restore cities and nations, and maybe even the world. A world where a person's physical and emotional and spiritual needs don't go unnoticed by the people who live next to them. A world where children and students can walk the streets and grow to school and grow up safe and protected because there's a community of people working together to protect them, looking out for their best interests. Where people are exposed to the love of Christ in ways that make sense to them and that are real. Exposed to the love of Christ that provide an authentic connection. Love thy neighborhood. It's actually a pretty powerful idea. So imagine what could happen if we became a church of really good neighbors. If each of us took an interest in the people who live around us because that's thousands of people who could be impacted. Just one neighbor along with a few others could transform a neighborhood. Impacting local communities, our local communities, this will be this church's greatest challenge in the next season of its ministry with your new senior pastor to actually impact our local communities. So please take this seriously. Pray about your role in loving your neighborhood. Love God, love neighbors, they go hand in hand. Love where you live. That's really the simplest way to say it. God wants from you is just to love where you live. So be the one who helps organize the summer block party. Be the one who welcomes the new neighbors who just moved in down the street. And even have the courage to say, would you like to come to church with us? Hey, we've got a new senior pastor coming. I'd love for you to meet him. Be the person who's giving those kinds of invitations. Be willing, be interruptible, be ready. Because if you are, God will bring you opportunity. He will bring you opportunity to love your neighbors in Jesus' name. So simple, especially when it's infused by the Holy Spirit because it could transform a church, a town, even a community. Let's pray together. Lord, I haven't always been the best neighbor. I haven't always done my part in even what I'm talking about today. But Lord, I do thank you that I believe you have placed us strategically where we live to take an interest in the people who are around us. And if not physically next door in the schools, in the communities, in the groups, in the other ways that we rub elbows with people here in New Providence and Chatham and Berkeley Heights, Mountainside, Madison, uh, all the way, all the, all the communities around here, Lord. Thank you that you've sprinkled your church throughout all of those places so that we could be those who impact thousands of others if we're willing. Thank you in Jesus' name, amen.